0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Johns Hopkins Medicine National Capital Region, envisioning the future of equal access to health care.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon
2: and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a deputy newsletter editor here at the Washington Post. And today we're here to talk about a hot topic in health policy, which is the practice of telemedicine. And we saw a huge surge in the use of this during the pandemic. And uh, here uh, to discuss that with me today are Drs. Lisa Fitzpatrick, the CEO of Grapevine Health, and Susan Galani, an assistant professor at Harvard Business School. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, And to our audience, remember we always want to hear from you. You can share your thoughts and questions for our guests on Washington Post Live by tweeting at Post Live, and we will try to incorporate some of those throughout our discussion. Uh, well, let's get started with you, Dr. Fitzpatrick. Um, I mentioned this at the outset, but the pandemic had a massive impact on the practice of telemedicine. Can you walk us through what we learned about the use of telemedicine, especially for seniors over the last couple of years?
1: Sure. Well, I think uh, the, the biggest thing we learned was that seniors are interested in digital health tools. And I think there's a myth out there that suggests seniors are not savvy enough or disinterested uh, due to their age um, to engage with technology. And we found that this isn't true. We learned that seniors will engage with technology if they are provided a helper, or if they have the resources to help them understand how to use technology. Um, the, other thing, the other big lesson we learned, and some of these lessons came not just from my own telemedicine practice, Uh, But from a study we did with um, Sibley Hopkins uh, Hospital here and a federally qualified health center, Unity Health Center, we we interviewed some of the seniors about their experience with telemedicine and found that some of them actually preferred it to inpatient visits. So I think uh, the the lessons we learned throughout the pandemic uh, were a perfect opportunity for us to think about how we can better. Uh, meet the digital health needs uh, for seniors.
2: And Dr. Fitzpatrick, I want to circle back to that, that question of seniors learning how to use telemedicine. But first, just zooming out a bit, Dr. Uh, Ghulani, I know you wrote that the pandemic, quote, catapulted, catapulted telehealth into the mainstream. How do you see that manifesting itself?
3: Well, for a a long time, we didn't have another choice, right? And especially for older, senior, older patients and more um, vulnerable patients, it was really important to keep them out of the hospital and to keep them out of um, scenarios and locations where they could get infected. So there were a lot of healthcare provider organizations that got really creative and leveraged uh, the use of telemedicine to connect with the patients that might need a little bit more constant contact or monitoring or having the opportunity to check on these older, more vulnerable patients without exposing them to unnecessary risk. And so uh, people had to get creative on how to leverage the platforms that we were all learning to use in a much more pervasive way in, in our entire lives, but especially within the realm
2: of, of healthcare. Uh, Dr. Gulani, though, I want to ask, can you walk us through, you know, when we're talking we're talking about patients with a lot of different kinds of conditions, I, I assume that there are some patients for whom telehealth may not be appropriate. You know, I'm thinking about when I go see my endocrinologist, does she need to see me in person all the time? Not always, but am I taking my, you know, four-year-old in to get checked out for, for a cold or something? That might be a different scenario. So you can, can you walk us through kind of who you think most benefits from telehealth and then who it may not be appropriate for?
3: Absolutely, there, uh, like you correctly say, there's variation in the benefits that we can um, obtain from the uh, more pervasive use of telehealth, and it's by no means a panacea. It doesn't apply everywhere. It's not perfect for everybody. There's a lot of um, considerations that we need to bring into the um, reasoning as to whether telehealth is is an appropriate solution for every patient, uh, and focusing on elder patients. Um, We have to consider their cognitive limitations, for example, or even more benign things like hearing impairments and other type of of limitations that might limit the benefits that could um, come out out of having access to your physician without leaving your home or having to find a means of transportation. So there's certainly benefits for um, those patients that have maybe less um, needs of a physical contact with the uh, with the physicians, so the physician cannot examine the the, the patient in person. Uh, but you know, um, to the extent that there is a um, room for discussion about the patient condition, checking on their vitals, we we also need to, I guess, define telehealth. What do we mean when we say telehealth? Is it just a video call, or is it a broader set of devices which includes wearables and blood pressure cuffs, and other devices that could inform the physician on the vitals of the patient. So depending on the condition of the patient, we could have more or less benefits coming out of a telemedicine visit. What I believe is one of the uh, biggest um, advantages of, of telehealth is having this possibility to connect with the patient without um, having to rely on means of transportation, which some, sometimes elder patients are um, have more uh, barriers to mobility and to independence to getting to the doctor's office but your example is very is very fitting in the sense that sometimes um, office visits and examinations need to be in a in a co-located scenario in which the, the physician can actually um you know examine physically the patient on the another benefit though that we have um, learned about in my work with my co-authors Tom Philly, Jose Figueroa and Umar Ikram on the use of telemedicine for uh, older patients is that sometimes this gives the patient a more comfortable scenario because they are in a comfortable setting that is known to them and it has proven useful to letting them open up to the uh, physician to share more of what's going on in their lives instead of being in a sterile un- unknown uncomfortable setting in a in, a, in an exam room in a physician's office. Additionally, a lot of physicians have manifested uh, some um, appreciation for the opportunity to take a little glimpse in the settings in which the patient lives. Do they have a comfortable uh, living room in which they are taking their call? Do they have somebody with them? So there's a lot of soft information that can be gathered by this
2: virtual visit. Dr. Fitzpatrick, let's go back to this issue of uh, seniors and their ability to receive telehealth care. Uh, And I know you've said that there's less of a digital divide problem in this country than a digital literacy problem. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Sure. There are are mountains of data by now showing that most people have access to some sort of technology, namely smartphones. I think the latest... Pew Research data show that upwards of 90% of Americans, including seniors, have access to a smartphone. And smartphones can are capable of video, uh, as well as text messaging and phone calls, email. So there, there are a variety of ways for us to reach people using technology. Some of them also have access to tablets. They're less likely to have a desktop or even a laptop. So I think the, the notion that the digital divide means people, because they don't have broadband, aren't able to access the internet um, is, is not true. And it's it doesn't um, comport with what we see on the ground when we're visiting people in their homes or talking to them in the community. So what we find is, even though people have access to the technology, they may not be comfortable using it or they may not know how to use it. So if they're not proficient with using the phone, accessing the portal at their provider's office, figuring out how to execute a telemedicine visit, we need to provide the support to help them understand that. And so that's what I mean by, we need to provide support to improve digital literacy. So can we help people understand how to maximize the use of the computer that's in their hand and we forget these smartphones are actually computers. And the last example I'll offer is a woman I visited early in the pandemic, a senior who had an iPhone and I left uh, a a pulse oximeter for her finger uh, to measure her oxygen. I left it with her and said, I would like you to check your oxygen and then text me the number every hour. And she said, well, I would, but my phone is broken. And I said, well, what's wrong with your phone? She said, I forgot my password. So we had a conversation about what that meant and how she could go about accessing her password. So that's just one example of many we've run across that highlight the need for us to help people become more proficient. And we find that once they do, they actually, they, they enjoy the experiences much more.
2: Well, and Dr. Fitzpatrick, I know that you have observed that many seniors, as you say, initially need someone to maybe get them set up on the technology, help them to log in, um, but then they will get comfortable with, with the virtual visit. Um, do you think there's enough recognition, I guess, of, in, in the medical community of the ability of, of older adults, say in their 70s or 80s, to ultimately use this technology as long as they have uh, you know, the resources to learn how to use it initially?
1: Thanks for asking that. No, there isn't. I think we need um, to talk a lot more about how seniors are capable of using technology and offering the support for them to do so. Um, I think, again, if you talk to any number of seniors, they're on a continuum from, no, I'm not interested in using any kind of technology, all the way to someone like my own mother who has in her in her living community, has taught other seniors how to use the computer and how to check their email. So it's really important for us to uh, dispense with the um, the misnomers around how people use technology because of their age. I actually now believe that age is somewhat irrelevant, and it's really about the person's in, the person's interest and whether or not they have the support they need um, to use it.
2: I, I could justify to that. I think my 80-year-old uh, grandfather is, is better at technology in some ways than, uh, than my sister. So um, it may not be an age thing. You might be right about that. Um, Dr. Galani, uh I know that you also did research on how healthcare providers uh, could discern if patients had the technology for virtual visits and then try to gauge whether they're able to use it correctly. Uh, what have you found out in conducting that research?
3: So this builds exactly on what Dr Fitzpatrick was just mentioning. There's a lot of variation and organizations that are interested in leveraging uh, virtual health or telehealth uh, devices need to understand, first and foremost, what is the ability of their patient to interface with those devices and uh, help and support the, the gaps, so to, to close the gap between the needs for the technology and the ability of the user. Uh, so there, there have been very creative organizations that have uh, implemented systems and, and processes in which they have been able to support their patients very well by, for example, um, using practice visits. So before setting up a real appointment, uh, some um, assistant could go through the practice visit with uh, the patient so that when the time of the actual visit comes, they have already done it once. Um, Other organizations or other solutions that I've, I've observed include sending somebody to the home of the patient to help them set up their technology and do a dry run with them. If that is not a possibility or it could be too costly, a lot of uh, other physicians have engaged family members and requested that they help their uh, their relative to uh, navigate the technology so it just it's very commonsensical at the end of the day but there there needs to be a lot of upstream thinking about what could be the challenges that our um, patients might encounter and we have to remember that This information that is shared through uh, video calls and telehealth and digital devices is also subject to uh, a a significant safety concern. And so a lot of organizations that, especially primary care organizations, are developing their own platforms, their own technology. Now, we all know how hard it is to learn a new platform, right? So there needs to be a lot of thinking in the design of these interfaces so that they can be, on the one hand, safe and secure. On the other hand, very usable and very friendly, user-friendly, so that they require less of a cognitive learning curve for
2: the patient. Well, I'd like to throw in a Twitter question uh, here. We have from a viewer, it looks like uh, Erin Coral wants to ask Dr. Fitzpatrick, uh, and can she speak to the problem of elder patients' access to internal medicine primary care physicians and what states can do to improve the number of medical residents entering the primary care field? Dr. Fitzpatrick, what would you say to that?
1: Yeah, this is a really great question. I think... The practice of primary care has to uh, move forward into the 21st century by diversifying the way we deliver care. And I think it can't only be within the four walls of a clinic. So, in addition to telemedicine, what are some ways that we can reach people in places where they already are? And there are quite a few. Um, healthcare startups that are focused on how to diversify the way care is delivered, whether it's through mobile vans, uh, home visits, partnering with community-based organizations that already provide support for seniors, and then providing some health-related resources that way. And I think if we offer those that range of opportunities to medical students and even people who are pre-medical uh, thinking about medical school, we may be better... Uh, we may be in a better position to entice them uh, to consider primary care as a uh, as a, a career. But I think ultimately, we have to find ways um, to help alleviate some of the burden people have with their student loans. Because I think for the students, I've mentored a lot of them. That's their biggest concern. I remember uh, a student telling me he's going into radiology and he really wanted to do primary care, but he just couldn't afford um, to, to make that choice based on the salary he'd be getting as a primary care doc. So I think finding people who are passionate about primary care, but who are willing uh, to be creative about the way care delivered is, is delivered and where it's delivered.
2: And Dr. Fitzpatrick, I, I want to also ask you, going back to telehealth, about a concern that is sometimes raised. And that is, if we get to this point where people are very comfortable with these telehealth visits, uh, is it possible that they could get to a point where they're very hesitant then to come in for an in-person visit, even when it might really benefit them? And I, as I as I ask you this question, I sort of think this is sort of a problem I think employers employers are having right now, where many of us are used to working from home. Now that they're trying to get people to come into the office, that can be a little bit Difficult now that people are so comfortable at home. So, what would you say to that concern?
1: I I, while I'm very supportive of telemedicine and digital health tools um, to support people's healthcare, I think it can't supplant uh, the face-to-face visit. But what we need to think creatively about, as I was speaking about just a minute ago, does that visit have to be in the confines of four walls of a doctor's office? Because if we think about the no-show rate, so no-show rates are calculated based on how many people are supposed to come to clinic that day and how many actually show up. And depending on the clinic, it can be as low as 10%. It could be as high as 50 or 60%. And when we ask people why that is, why they're not coming, it's inconvenient. People have to work. They have social demands uh, that interfere with their ability to come to a primary care clinic. So I think if we are creative about this, we can, we can marry the technology, the innovative technology associated with digital visits, as well as providing the, the resources people need for face-to-face or physical visits. And I think in many cases, physical exams are still warranted for a lot of people. And I'm a little dismayed that some people haven't had a physical exam in many years because their providers just don't think there's value in it. I've even heard uh, someone in uh, the health innovation space say, well, ultimately you won't need doctors at all because technology will be able to do everything you do. But doctors are here because we are able Uh, To intuit, we are able, we have empathy, compassion, we can read body language in a way that I think even the fanciest AI may not be be able to. Um, Someone I'm sure will try to prove me wrong, but there is a need for physical exams. And I hope uh, we don't leave this conversation uh, thinking that technology can do it all for us. And some people may not want that We need to retain choice for people to see a provider face-to-face and have that augmented uh, with a telemedicine visit.
2: As we're talking about this balance between in-person and telehealth, um, Dr. Ghilani, I know at Stanford Healthcare, in Palo Alto, California, 30 to 40% of all patient visits are now virtual, uh, even though they've also resumed in-person appointments. Is that roughly the the correct uh, proportion of virtual to in-person? What should doctors aim for there? I think
3: that's at the discretion of the physician and taking into account what the patient needs are. First and foremost, physicians are there for the patients. And they add a ton of value. I could not agree more with Dr. Fitzpatrick's views on on this because it's not possible to think about a world in which the medicine will be delivered just through technology, at least not in the short term. Um, But at the end of the day, what matters in terms of choices on how healthcare is delivered is what is its effectiveness, what is its value. What does it add for the patient? And so, whether there should—I'm—I'm I'm hesitant to say what the proportion should be, because it depends on the patient population. So there, there's no one size fits all here. It, it is about finding the right solution for the individual patient and work at the patient condition level. Uh, for some patients, it's—it's uh, it's sufficient to have a checkup. I happen to be a. I'm very lucky to be a very healthy person. And I have um, encounters with my uh, general practitioner, uh, just my family doctors once a year with my physical. And if I'm lucky, that's the only time I see her. But it is um, also very comfortable for me to know that I can reach her, even uh, if I don't uh, have you know, anything scheduled, if I have a question. So definitely the, the technology is helping in the relationship. But other patients might need more High touch and more in-person presence. So I would think about this. I would encourage us to think about this from a patient needs perspective and from a patient population perspective.
2: One of the things that we've been paying attention to in the health policy space, of course, is uh, how the government reimburses providers for telehealth. And uh, I know that there's been a lot of concern in this space around Medicare, which has been viewed as relatively slow to adopt uh, telehealth. And that has, of course, expanded during the pandemic and the public health emergency. But now those payments or those, those expansions could go away as soon as the public health emergency ends. I'm just wondering, and I'd like to hear from both of you on this. Um, what 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 needs to be done? Um, do we need to retain these expanded payments? Uh, what can the government do to sort of encourage the continued adoption of telehealth? Uh, and Dr. Fitzpatrick, let's go with you first.
1: I, I think the the demand we're seeing for telemedicine and digital health um, access um, has created an imperative. So I, I believe this has to continue. I think a lot of people who traditionally were not seen are able to access um, health support health information uh, when they need it via telemedicine or other digital health um, tools so I think and I hope and I know CMS is convening many conversations about this now in anticipation of the public health emergency ending uh, but you know my my hope and also, my prediction is that uh, a lot of these will be, a lot of these um, policies will be institutionalized because we know how badly people need it and how well they're serving the public. And
2: Dr. Galani, what would you say to that?
3: I, I agree. I, I think this is an opportunity that we have to add a tool to our toolbox in order to deliver care where it's needed and in the way that it's needed. Um, whether how ins- and, and whether it should be paid as much as an in-person visit or whether it should be paid more or less, the jury is still out on that. And why I'm an academic, so I'm taking this from an academic perspective maybe, but I think we need to examine and study the benefits and costs that telemedicine brings about. Let's not forget that telemedicine has a structural cost to the system, and uh, also to the physicians and the practitioners, because it takes a different set of skills, it takes learning about how to deliver care in a different way, and, The last thing we want is for this to be another channel to add to the burnout of our physicians. So we have to be mindful and careful about how we implement these innovations and not think just in incremental terms, but analyze very objectively and critically the value that telemedicine adds and reimburse that appropriately for whatever is the value that it can add so that we can enable and empower our physicians to deliver care in the best possible way, and uh, minimize the uh, wasteful use of resources so that we can expand access and leverage this this new tool for the benefits that it can provide.
2: Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we're gonna have to leave things there, but thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Galani and Dr. Fitzpatrick. It was great speaking with both of you.
1: Thank Good you pleasure. for having me.
2: We'll all be back in a few minutes to continue this program. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm Ruth Umo, leadership editor at Fortune. Baby boomers are one of the first generations to experience a longer lifespan thanks to demographic shifts and advances in healthcare. Here to discuss the role of health systems in building community-based care and support for older adults is Carolyn Carpenter, president of the National Capital Region at Johns Hopkins Health System. Welcome Carolyn, so happy to have you here with us today. Thank you for having me. Of course, well Carolyn, let's kick things off. How can health systems work toward improving the health of all residents in the communities they serve, regardless of whether or not those residents are patients?
4: Great question. You know, our responsibility as a health system is to create a healthier, vibrant, and more equitable community. And as anchor institutions, Sibley Hospital and Suburban Hospital are the fabric of their communities and are uniquely positioned to help people feel connected to their neighbors and find new ways to thrive. And we can do that through a variety of means that actually even go beyond the walls of the hospital, whether that be virtual access to care, health information, support groups, community fitness classes, seminars, a whole host of mechanisms. And we do it with a thought process that we need to eliminate disparities and we need to increase inclusion. Hopkins Medicine was founded on the concepts of providing care to all regardless of race, sex, or creed. And we are committed to doing that through our community care. A great example for us is Ward Infinity. The mission of Ward Infinity is actually to partner with the change agents within the communities to magnify and accelerate their capacity to improve health and well-being. Ward Infinity aims to meaningfully reduce health disparities through the creation of community-driven solutions. And through the program, we work with folks in Ward 7 and 8 to identify what their challenges are and ideate through them with their ideas about what the opportunities are for improvement and allow them to drive the initiatives, whether it be about food scarcity or challenges with food deserts environments where they need to be safe or access to emotional well-being services or things like we call it playback theater which actually is an opportunity for communities to get come together tell their stories and thrive and create a better sense of well-being and that's what really makes the initiative work is that we work with the people within the communities to create these ideas and then empower them to activate them.
0: You mentioned the need to expand beyond hospital walls. So let's dig into that. How do you structure your programs and outreach in ways that build trust with communities that might otherwise not trust doctors and hospitals?
4: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, building trust is critical to creating the relationships we need to actually help people improve their own health. Without trust in our organizations and the people who work with us, we can't even reach those communities. And the way we do that is first we listen. We really listen and we seek to understand, and then we partner with those communities and we empower from within. It's important for us to not assume we know what the solutions are, but to provide the forums and the resources for people to create solutions within our communities. A great example is we found that getting COVID-19 vaccines into the communities was really stalled because of a lack of trust in our organizations. And so what we did was we partnered with others to create those forums where we could distribute vaccines. We actually worked with folks in our senior living facilities, for example, in DC and asked them to help create the forum by opening, actually opening facilities or spaces within those senior living facilities where we could come and provide the vaccines. On-site, even walking door to door within some of those facilities to provide vaccines to folks. So the thought process of actually working with the people within the community and having the trusting relationship that they have allow us to actually have access to providing care.
0: Very well said. Uh, it's also hugely important that health systems break down barriers to acquiring quality care. What can health systems do to create more equitable access to health care for older adults?
4: Oh, that's a great question. You know, the concept of caring for older adults is a critical one as we see the aging of our population. When we think about in the next three to four years, we'll have those baby boomers. And those baby boomers are 77 million strong, um, reaching the age of 80. And we know 80 is one of those times in our lives when we're actually needing more and more care. When you're, you know, a young 75, usually only about 10% of those folks need what we call long-term support. When you get into the 80s, it's, 40% of those individuals need support and support. We know really means that we need to do a better job of providing access for those folks. We need to provide education. We need to provide communication and we need to Provide models of care that are actually reaching our seniors. From an access perspective, the use of technology can't be underestimated. You know, de- um, telehealth visits have exponentially increased in our industry, and that's a fantastic thing for our elders. But it requires they actually know how to use um, the technology. And we've gone through, like our C- uh, Sibley Senior Association, to have programs where we actually get that technology out individually into the homes and then have different organizations help teach our elders how to use that. Technology, from a communication perspective, my chart, which is one way of sending messages, we've increased from about ninety thousand a month to two hundred seventy thousand a month in terms of messages to our folks. And then we have a host of education as well as care models that are actually happening in the home and partnering with organizations to get folks care in the home or even transportation to us. We partner with organizations that help bring our elders to us and back into their living facilities or homes. So we need to reach out to them in order to provide that care and create the structures around them.
0: That's great. Well, as we both know, the nation has a high aging population. And so this topic will only become more exigent in years to come. Carolyn, thank you for your time and deep insights. And now back to the Washington Post. Thank you.
4: And now, back
2: to Washington Post Live. Well, welcome back. Uh, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, and I want to continue this conversation today with a a bestselling author and a leading expert and advocate for living a long, healthy life. He is Dan Buettner, and welcome to Washington Post Live, Dan.
5: It's a delight to be here.
2: And remember, we always do want to hear from you, our audience. Uh, You can share your thoughts and questions for our guest on Washington Post Live by tweeting at Post Live. And we'll try to incorporate some of those questions during our conversation. Uh, Dan, I know that you give talks all over the country uh, saying that people can live to be 100 if they want. And I must say, as a skeptical journalist, this this brings out the skeptic in me. Um, Can you explain for us a little bit what you mean by this claim?
5: I'm not sure where the claim comes from. I actually don't believe the average American could become 100. You have to have won the genetic lottery uh, to reach age 100. About one in 2,500 Americans can expect to live to be 100. I do, however, say that the average American could live about 12 years longer if they optimize their lifestyle and their environment. And there's ample evidence uh, from that. I just spent the last three months, in fact, revisiting uh, these five areas around the world we call blue zones where people are living up to 10 years longer than Americans are. And they're doing so not because they have better genes or some magical supplement or or home hormone therapy. They're living longer lives because they live in an environment where the, the healthy choice is not only easy, but unavoidable
2: that's a really helpful clarification. Um, and uh, you know, one thing I'm sure which you know is that the number of uh, Americans living to be 100 is actually a fast-growing population. Uh, and I know you've said there are a lot of myths associated with living uh, a long life. What are some of the biggest myths you've come across in your research?
5: that if your parents died young, you're doomed to die young. Only about 15% of how long we live is attributable to genes. The reverse is also true. Just because your parents lived a long time doesn't mean you can drink a fifth of whiskey every day and smoke cigarettes and expect to live a long time. Um, you know, when it comes to these areas where people uh, live a long time, and National Geographic did a piece, uh, well, actually in the 70s, that that uh, suggested that the caucuses in the former Soviet Union, Vilcabamba Valley of Ecuador, and the Hunza Valley were, you know, Shangri La's, and uh, they're they're not. And to in order to to find places where we know people are living statistically longest, we have to look at birth records hundred years ago, follow those people for an, a lifetime, and then adjust for immigration and emigration. And uh, we do that work at National Geographic. So. Uh, Once you've identified a population that has achieved the outcomes that most of us want, which is to live a long time largely without uh, non-infectious diseases, then my work has been focused on trying to find the common denominators uh, across the globe of what seems to be producing the longest, healthiest lives.
2: Uh, And going back to the genetic part of this, which is fascinating, I know you emphasize that only a small portion of our longevity is due to our genes. And I thought that was interesting because I'm remembering back to when I took psychology as a high school student and it was, I I felt like the trope was sort of 50% nurture, 50% nature. Um, So can you walk us through, what, what do you base that
5: estimate on? It's based on something called the Danish twin studies, which finished, which followed sets of, of, of uh, identical twins and, and who, who also have identical genes and then fraternal twins who were brought up, brought up in the same environment but have different genes. And uh, then they, they measure the variance at death. And just to be clear, when I cite 15%, that's for a population. So you have some people on one end of the spectrum where um, they can do everything right their whole life Eat a plant based diet, work out every day, low stress, and they're dead at 50 because of some congenital problem. That represents fewer than 1% of the population. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there are um, cases of people making it to 100 smoking cigarettes and drinking too much. Uh, And they're at the other end of the spectrum, but most of us are within a couple standard deviations. uh, of, of the mean and uh, about 15% of how long we live is uh, determined by our genes. The vast majority, however, is, um, uh, is is up to us. And I think where my message varies from the majority, I have very little faith in behavior modification, diets and exercise programs and taking supplements because the research is is very clear that people don't stick with things for the long run. And when it comes to longevity, if you want to affect how long you're going to live, you have to think about things you'll do not just for a few months, but for decades or a lifetime. And um, and so that's what gets us to environment. Living in the right environment, you'll mindlessly make the better decision for long enough, so you're not uh, you're not developing uh, diabetes or or heart condition, avoidable heart condition, or certain types of cancers.
2: Do you think Americans in particular underestimate then the effects of the behavior if, as you say, that's say 85% in determining your longevity?
5: Absolutely. I mean, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars are spent in the dietary industry and the exercise industry trying to convince us that uh, getting on this diet or joining this gym, et cetera, is going to help us live a long time. But if you look at the recidivism curves for both diets and gyms, you know, they work for really well for seven to ten months, and then they fall off a cliff after that. And if you look at real populations that are making it into their mid nineties, and that's about, by the way, the maximum average life expectancy of, of um, somebody of the human of living in the developed worlds, probably ninety two or ninety three. You know, we're dying at seventy nine or eighty here in the United States. Um, But populations that are achieving that, they're not doing it because they have better diets or gyms, they don't have better discipline or individual responsibility. Uh, They're just like you and I, who happen to live in an environment where, like I said, the healthy choice is unavoidable. And I can drill down on what I mean by that if you want as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. If you could, that'd be great because I, it feels like we're talking a couple, talking about a couple of things here. You know, we we do seem to have this idea here in the U.S. that our behaviors do matter. But then, as you say, we have trouble sticking to the diet or sticking to the eating plan. And so you seem to be saying that it needs to be sort of easy and convenient in a sense for us to follow these practices. But can you hash that out a little bit more?
5: Yes. You know, so I'm not saying that behavior can't work, it just doesn't work. If you look, you know, I work with uh, cities uh, that to try to get entire cities to eat less, eat better, move more, socialize more, know their purpose and live out their purpose. And you can't get Americans to agree on what a healthy diet is, for example. Um, It's not that there aren't single digit percentages of people who have the discipline and the presence of mind to do the right thing for decades, but uh, for the vast majority, it just doesn't work. So if you if you, um, if you you look at what centenarians have actually eaten to live to be 100, and with National Geographic and Harvard, we did a meta-analysis. All five blue zones, uh, we looked at what people were eating 80 years ago to the present and then averaged that out, and you see that 90 to 100% of what they're eating is whole plant-based food. Uh, They're eating meat, but fewer than five times per month. Very little fish, Uh, no cows dairy. Uh, The the foods that form the the cornerstones of their diet are always whole grains, greens, nuts, tubers, like sweet potatoes, and beans. Uh, Every diet of longevity in the world, they're eating about a cup of beans a day, which is probably adding about four years to their life expectancy. Um, they're they're not cultures that exercise. There's nobody who are doing, you know, marathons or CrossFit. Uh, but our team has observed that on average they're nudged into movement every 20 minutes or so. Uh, their houses aren't full of mechanical conveniences. They're still out back uh, growing a garden. Every time they go to work or a friend's house or out to eat, uh, it occasions a walk. So they're burning far more calories over the course of the day. They're keeping their metabolism. At a much higher level, uh, and they're doing it mindlessly, so they don't have to call upon reserves of of uh, discipline, or uh, they don't have to be reminded, or you know, given a free T-shirt for getting their their exercise. It's just baked into their into their environment. That's what works. Uh, so I want
2: I want to dig a little deeper into one one aspect here that I'm a little confused about still, because I know you talk about. So we're talking about diet, but I know that you also talk a lot about. Uh, living in community, about spiritual health. Can you kind of dissect that for us a little bit in terms of which of those things you see as most important for this longevity that, you, that you're that you talking about?
5: So w- when you look at the common denominators of the longest lived places, they all tend to belong to a faith. And we know that people who belong to a faith-based community and show up at least four times per month live four to 14 years longer than people who don't. And the people enjoying that 14 years tend to be inter-city youth. So it's arguably the most cost-effective public health intervention there is, is getting people involved with a faith. Now you can't really measure spirituality, but you can measure uh, religiosity, which is simply how often do people show up at church, temple, and mosque. And there's a clear advantage uh, to getting people involved with a faith. Um, What was the other question you wanted?
2: Well, I think just sort of uh, clarifying where you see the role of diet and then the role of these other aspects of health and, and, and how, I guess, perhaps how you would rank those things in order of importance for longevity.
5: I think eating a whole plant-based diet, uh, uh, overeating a standard American diet, it's probably worth between six and 12 extra years of life expectancy, given your age. Um, I think second, the second most important is uh, being socially connected. We we know that people who are lonely in America, which means they don't have three good friends they can count on on a bad day, they lose about eight years of life expectancy. And especially after COVID, we're increasingly imploding into our houses and our apartments and relying on our our handheld devices for our social interaction. We're looking at places around the world where people are Uh, longest lived and happiest, they're doing uh, six to eight, seven hours of face-to-face social interaction with people they can count on. Uh, I'd say that's um, number three, I would say, uh, getting uh, 60 to 75 minutes of physical activity a day. And by the way, I don't mean pumping iron or something strenuous. Uh, That actually, uh, stressing yourself too much with physical activity actually, Uh, uh, builds up oxidative stress, which will increase your aging. Uh, The ideal physical activity for just about every American is simply walking. And most of us can get enough of that if if we live in neighborhoods where to get to grocery stores and coffee shops and to our friend's house and to work on foot uh, pretty much does the trick. Uh, It gets us 90% the way there. Um, And then I think having a strong sense of purpose Uh, Robert Butler, who was the uh, original director of the uh, National Institutes on Aging, authored a study looking at retrospective writings and found that people who could best articulate their sense of purpose were living seven years longer than people who were rudderless in life. Now, Now, these are things where I can't package them up and sell you a pill or a supplement or make a quick buck, but the research that underpins these things is vast. And it's manifest in these blue zones, these cultures where people are actually getting the years we wish we were getting. And by the way, doing so at a fraction of the healthcare costs that we're spending in this country on largely sick care.
2: You have a best-selling book called Blue Zones Kitchen uh, in which you outline 100 recipes for healthy living. So when I go home tonight, uh, can you give me a recommendation on what I should make to feed my family?
5: Yes. So I met the family that that won the Guinness World Record for the most uh, for the longest lived nine siblings collective uh, age 841 years every year of their life they ate the same minestrone soup three beans uh Onions, garlic, red pepper finished with the extra virgin olive oil. They ate that every day of their life with the sourdough bread. Both of the recipes are in that Blue Zones uh, kitchen. I think it's a great way to start your day. I did anyway, <laughs> and it works for me.
2: Now, the trick I got, I guess, is getting my kids to eat it, right? Um, Uh, This is all really fascinating. Um, I I do want to dig into the exercise part a little bit more, which I know you already referenced. um, But as you know, of course, these kind of like hardcore exercise programs are so trendy right now. Um, But can you talk a little bit about the research that you've looked at in terms of uh, figuring out what the best kind of exercise is for us and why you think a strenuous exercise is not, in fact, the best option?
5: Well, last week I was in Sardinia, uh, Italy. They, they have nine times as many centenarians per thousand people than we do in the United States. Uh, probably eight years extra life expectancy, much lower rates of cardiovascular disease. You can't find a gym in any of the five blue zone cities. You look at their life, they wake up every morning, they spend a few hours in their garden, uh, they'll spend a few more hours uh, pasturing their, their, their uh, animals, sheep or goats. They come back and they do a little housework and they take a nap. Uh, so these are people who um, never exercise a day in their life. They just live their lives. Uh, so we know that when you uh, when you work your muscles really hard, um, you you know inside of your cells there are mitochondria and and they they take glucose and they take uh, uh, oxygen and they. Um, I'm oversimplifying, but in a factory it creates energy and the other byproduct is a free radical which rusts us from the inside out. So every time you're overworking your body, uh, you're creating these free radicals which uh, circulate through our, our bloodstream, they they corrode our arteries, they favor arteriosclerosis, they shrink your brain, they wrinkle your skin. And I'm talking now, not this isn't something that happens overnight, this happens when you're overworking yourself uh, every day for decades. Uh, You're accelerating your aging, as opposed to simply walking or doing gentle, low intensity physical activity like gardening. That actually lowers uh, stress hormones and and, uh, slows down the aging process as opposed to the opposite.
0: We're
2: almost out of time, but I can't uh, end without asking you. I know that you hold three Guinness World Records in distance cycling. Uh, Does that go along the lines of what you're recommending? I mean, that seems like a fiercely competitive activity. So uh, why is that your exercise of choice?
5: Well, that was 30 years ago. I I, I biked around the world across Africa and Alaska and Argentina. The young body is much um, uh, more uh, fit to absorb uh, uh, strenuous physical activity. Now my biking is limited to pedaling to the grocery store or biking up and down the Strand here in Miami. So um, I, I'm, I'm living a, a blue zone life when it comes to physical activity these, these days.
2: Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. So we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dan Butner. This was a great conversation.
5: Paige, it was a delight to talk to you.